Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me or a first-time visitor or I haven't got to talk to you yet, my name, yet, my name is Joseph Stanley, and I am a member here at Red House Baptist Church, and I've been a part of this church for about four years now, serving in various ways, and I'm honored to be able to fill the pulpit this morning for Pastor Dwayne. And I would ask that you be in prayer for our pastor and his family as they are away on vacation this week. And I am thankful that you are here uh, joining us today as we look to God's Word and uh, as we continue to go journey through the book of James today. Uh, pastor Dwayne has been journeying through the book of James over the past couple of months. And uh, he's asked me to pick up at James 4, verse 4 this morning, which I am looking forward to doing. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to James 4, chapter number 4, verse number 1, we'll begin our reading. Uh, But before we get to the reading, I have a question for you all. Uh, You know, last week during the invitation, we sang a particular song, and I'm not going to ask you to remember what that song was, because I had to go look myself to make sure, because I thought so, but I had to make sure. We sang, I Surrender All. I'm sure you've heard of that song before. I'm sure you've sang, I Surrender All, many times throughout the course of your life. I'm sure it's been sang by Red House Baptist Church hundreds of times over the entire existence of the church. And just think of these words that we sing when we say, I surrender all. We, we say, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Second verse says, all to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. And then we sing the, the chorus, I surrender all, I surrender all. Now, I have a question for you. When you left out of the service last Sunday, and if you weren't here last Sunday, uh, you don't, this question don't apply to you, what did you surrender? What changed? What was different about your walk since last Sunday? What about the message that Pastor Dwayne preached impacted your life where you sang, I surrender all at invitation and really meant it? You see, when we're singing songs of praise to the Lord, we're either singing a praise or we're singing a prayer. And our words should have meaning. But I'm afraid oftentimes we hear the songs so many times that they become nothing more than a nursery rhyme or a nice little poem. And they have no real impact or meaning to our hearts. Do think God takes our words seriously? I mean, we're saying to him, I surrender all to you, Jesus. But what's changed? What did you surrender? Did you start your Monday morning in full dedication to the Lord, giving all of your family, your marriage, your home, your work, your chores, your week to God? What's changed since you've been a Christian? Some of you have been Christians here today for One year, two years, 20 years, 50 years, 60 years. What's changed since you've first believed? Where is the evidence of constant growth in your life? Or have you been a Christian for years yet are still behaving and living like you just experienced a new birth yesterday? That's what came to my mind 
as I read these scriptures that we're going to look at today. You see, in verses 1 through 3 of this passage, and in the chapters preceding it, we learn that this, these Christians, these Jewish Christians who James was writing to, was very immature in some ways. They had allowed the world to affect the way they thought and behaved. Uh, they were playing favoritism. They were failing to apply the word to their life. They said they had faith, but there was no works to give evidence to that faith. Uh, In chapter 3, we learned uh, that they thought it was okay to bless people and to curse them, which was wrong. And then we learned last week the difference between godly wisdom and the wisdom of the world. And we come to chapter number 4, verse 1, and we see that they are in conflict with one another. There is, it says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? What is the source of their conflict, of their division? If there's conflict between people, there's conflict within your heart because you have conflict with God. We can't expect to have good relationships with one another if we don't have a good relationship with God. And if we really have a good relationship with God, we will seek to have good relationships with one another. So let's look at our reading today, James chapter number 4, starting in verse number 1, and we will read through verse number 12. What, are the, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then he gets to a very strong moment. Notice verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Thank God for that. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, 
And we've read this passage, Lord, that is very sobering to me. To, to think of how our relationship with you is so marred whenever we look like the world, whenever we befriend the world. Lord, I pray now that you would help us to understand your word, help us to apply it to our lives, help us to have open ears to hear and open hearts to receive and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As I said earlier, we see that this, these Christians were at war with one another, which was the result of the war that was going on inside of their hearts. We're sinners, we're depraved by nature. Therefore, the sin, the flesh that is within us wars against the Spirit, the Spirit of God in us, fighting, wanting to have its way. And when it does have its way, it will be made evident by the war we have with each other. And he says even their prayers was off. He said they were asking, but they were asking amiss. They were not, their motives were wrong in their relationship with God and in their prayers, and even accused them of murder and being covetous and waging war with one another. But what was the problem? What was the problem with these people? Well, they were unfaithful. Point number one is simply James telling these people to repent of their unfaithfulness, repent of their unfaithfulness and pride. You see, the Christian is called to be faithful. That should be the defining characteristic of the Christian life, faithfulness to God. In Luke 9, verses 23 through 25, Jesus told, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Anyone wants to come after Jesus. That's any man, any woman, any boy, any girl, of any nationality, of any ethnicity. Anyone wants to come after Jesus, the requirement is self-denial. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him daily. This is a routine, a rhythm of our lives. It's not a one-time thing where we sing, I surrender all, and we say, okay, I surrendered in the sanctuary, but at home, I'm not doing that. Why would I need to take up my cross and deny myself? Did Jesus really mean that? Yes. He calls us to be 100% dedicated. And when we are not, we're serving two masters. And we'll be unstable and double-minded in all of our ways. And those who are called to follow Jesus, and if you're a Christian here today, you're supposed to be a follower of Jesus. Although uh, being a Christian seems like a noun, it's almost an action, it's a verb. It's a part of who we are, we're actively following the Lord. Those who are believers make up the church, and the church is considered to be the bride of Christ. 
Even in Ephesians 5, when we learn about wives being submissive to their husbands, we also learn about the church being submissive to our groom, Christ. So, we get here to verse number 4. And I'll tell you, uh, Pastor Dwayne, when he asked me to preach, he said, start in verse 4. And I said, that's a little bit of a strong statement there to call the whole church adulterers. Right off the bat, you adulterous people, I mean, get your attention. Why is he calling them all adulterous people? Well, back into the Old Testament, it was common for God's people, the Israelites, whenever they would turn from God, from Yahweh, and begin to serve false gods, a false deity, God would accuse them or charge them with committing adultery against him. But now in this situation, these Christians aren't worshiping a false god. They're not worshiping some pagan god. What are they doing wrong, though? They're behaving like the world. Because he tells us, you adulterous people, and he's calling them He's calling out their unfaithfulness to God. Again, we're called to be faithful to God. We're called to follow Christ daily. But whenever we begin to live like the world, we are guilty of being unfaithful to God. Because he says, don't you know, verse 4, notice it again, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility? It's hostility towards God. The bride of Christ, the church, is being unfaithful to her groom whenever she becomes friends with the world's system. You see, I want to be clear here. I don't think it's talking about just being friendly to someone who's not a Christian. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to have love for our fellow man who doesn't know Christ. We're supposed to share the gospel with them. You can befriend them, not embrace their ways, not embrace their sin, but you can embrace them as a fellow image bearer of God. But we're not supposed to embrace their world's system, the world's ideologies, the world's philosophies. When we do that, we become friends with the world, unfaithful to God, and we become enemies of the Lord. Because we are aligning ourselves up with his enemies. We're aligning ourselves up with the kingdom of darkness. And oftentimes when we think of looking like the world, we think of some uh, big moral issue. And we say they're worldly because... They're committing that great immorality, and that's true. But did you know we can look just as much like the world when we have arguments and conflicts amongst us, when pride defines us, when arrogancy is who we are in all of our actions? Did you know that's worldly, that's sinful, and it's against God? I heard a story of a a dad who was looking out the window watching his daughter play with all the neighborhood kids and he noticed they got into a heated argument and they were just yelling and screaming and quarreling for an extended period and he got concerned so he walked outside and he said he, he went to correct his daughter and didn't know what's going on and she said oh it's okay dad we're just playing church <laughs> you know psalm one is very important because it tells us something about the world 
and the righteous. And Psalm 1 tells us that, in verse 1, tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The man who is blessed, get this, or happy, depending on what translation you're reading, this is King James I'm talking from, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This blessed man who doesn't walk in the ways of the world, verse 2 tells us, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law doth he meditate day and night. It's a part of his life. This is what shapes his world's view. This is what shapes the blessed man's life. And verse 3 tells us that this blessed man who doesn't walk in the ways of the world, who makes the word of God supreme in his life, verse 3 tells us he shall be like a, a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit and his season. His leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So the person who, who denies the world system, befriends God and, and is really faithful to him, embraces the word of God, will be ever flourishing tree of righteousness, ever renewed by God. But verse 4 of Psalm 1 tells us, the ungodly are not so, but they are like the chaff. Chaff is like debris, dust, junk. The ungodly are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 6 is very sobering. For the Lord knoweth the way of those who are his, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You want to follow the ways of the world, and we want to embrace the world's value system. We're leading to ourselves down a road of destruction. And we need to check our hearts, not everyone else's hearts. I don't need to check Tabitha's heart. I need to check Joseph's heart. And see, am I being faithful to God? Because the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, to abstain from all appearances of evil. Abstain from all appearances of evil. And those who want to be faithful should be abstaining from all appearances of evil. Jen Wilkin, uh, I listened to recently, taught from this passage, and she said, you know how we can tell if we're friends with the world? If we've aligned ourselves with the world in such a way that we've become enemies with God? You can check your checkbook and your calendar. What do you value most in your life? What does your checkbook look like? Are you investing in the kingdom of God? I'm not here to talk about money today. But what do you value most? And what's your calendar look like? What's your schedule look like? Where is your time for God? Do you have a time set aside each day where you're communing with the Lord in prayer and reading and studying like that blessed man who who meditates on the word of God day and night? Do your children see that the Bible is important to your home and that God matters or do they only see you coming to church and then the rest of the week God stays at church and has no part of our lives if we're too busy for God let me just say we're too busy 
If we're too busy for God, we're, we're too busy. Secondly, we're, we're still in for point number one, but the next point we see uh, is repent of our unfaithfulness, and then we see pride. I repent of pride. Verse 6 says, He gives greater grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud. So we've seen that the unfaithful have become enemies of God, and when you become the enemies of God, you're unfaithful. That's the indication that pride is swelled up in your heart because you're not willing to turn from your unfaithfulness. Instead, you're filled with pride, unwilling to submit to God, unwilling to surrender all. Did you know pride is one of the chief characteristics of Satan? Look with me in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 14. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 15. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. This gives us an indication of what it looked like uh, when Satan fell from heaven. And it was characterized by pride. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says, Shining morning star, how have you fallen from the heavens? You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of God's assembly in the remotest part of the earth. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But listen, but you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. Satan was filled with pride wanting to be higher than God, wanting to be supreme. That's what characterizes us when we're filled with pride as well. It, was what, it literally means to show oneself to be higher, above another. And ultimately, we want to be above one of each other, but it goes further than that. We want to be above God. We allow pride to swell up within our heart. You know what God thinks of pride, though? Proverbs 6 tells us that God hates pride and arrogancy. Proverbs 2.14 tells us that pride is a sin. Proverbs 16.18 tells us that pride goes before destruction. And we see even in the Garden of Eden when that deceptive serpent, Satan, entered the garden, he deceived Eve into believing she could be like God. She was experiencing the pride of life. Pride is not good. And, And you know, I believe each of us We all have an inner defense attorney within our hearts. What do I mean by that? We all have an inner defense attorney. Well, if I was to come to Miss Sheila and tell her that she's not accused of anything wrong, if I was to say, I seen Miss Sheila at Walmart the other day and I seen her steal a pack of gum. I didn't see her do that. And I was seeing it, we had it on camera and everything. I was the same as Sheila. I seen you steal that pack of gum. You need to repent. And you need to go ask forgiveness to Walmart and even before the church because that's a sin. You didn't represent our church well in doing that. And you didn't represent God well. And Miss Sheila, instead of saying, You're right, 
and, and, re, and obeying the convicting power of the Holy Spirit within her, because she's a Christian, she's a believing woman. Instead, she says, I didn't do that. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not guilty of anything. Because we don't like to admit when we're wrong. And instead of getting over it, over the pack of gun being stolen, it would turn into a big issue, which would lead to destruction. Now, that's not true of Sheila, so if anyone from Walmart's listening, she did not steal any gum recently that I know of, at least. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We have that inner lawyer inside of us. He says, I didn't do anything wrong. It's your fault, actually. If, 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 if they had gum for free, I wouldn't have had to steal it. And if you would have made the, the situation right, I, I wouldn't be even accused right now. So it's all your fault. And I didn't do anything wrong. But Paul Tripp tells us that humility is about firing that inner lawyer and opening yourself up to the ongoing power of transforming grace. Max Lucado said, God resists the proud. Why? Because the proud resist God. Arrogance stiffens the knee so it will not kneel. Hardens the heart so it will not admit to sin. The heart of pride never confesses, never repents, never asks for forgiveness, which is the most unchristian characteristic that you could have. We want to be forgiven from by God. We need to seek forgiveness and give forgiveness to others. Indeed, the arrogant never feed the need, feel the need for forgiveness. Pride is a hidden reef that shipwrecks the soul. That's pride. So they're guilty of unfaithfulness and pride. But why, why do we look to the world as if as if it could please us, as if it's what we need. I like this quote by Isaac Ambrose that says, he's an old Puritan, who said, Why stand ye gazing on the toys of this world when such a Christ is offered to you in the gospel? Can the world die for you? Can the world reconcile you to the Father? Can the world advance you to the kingdom of heaven? It's a good question to have. Why do we get so amused by the ways of the world, and yet think so little of Christ. Secondly, we see the need to resist the devil boldly. Second point is resist the devil boldly. You know, you really don't hear a lot about the devil talked about in churches, because it's really not a good subject. I mean, who wants to talk about the devil? Well, he's here in the the scripture mentioned, but we've got to talk about it. And did you know I found in a a research shows that four out of ten Christians do not believe that Satan is a living being. Instead, they just consider him to be a mere symbol of evil. And wouldn't you think that'd just be just like Satan, not to take him seriously? Just to think, oh, he's not really real. If we don't believe he's real, he's free to work and do all the evil he wants to do because we're not even believing that he's able to do anything. We don't believe he's real, a living being. But according to the Bible, the devil is a real being. He is real. He was in the Garden of Eden deceiving Eve in the form of a serpent. We see Satan waging a war, a, a wage, waging war and an attack on Job in the book of Job. We see his past rebellion mentioned 
already in the book of Isaiah. And actually, Satan tempted Jesus himself. He's in the book of Acts, filling the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie against the Holy Ghost, in the book of Acts, chapter number 5. And Satan is actually in the writings of John, Peter, Paul, and Jude. So the testimony of Scripture tells us that the Satan is real. We don't need to be ignorant of his devices. We don't be ignorant of who he is. We need to realize that the devil, the devil, Satan, he is the serpent, the strong one, the lion, the wicked one, the accuser, the god of this age, the murderer, the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air. This is who Satan is. And scripture tells us at verse 7 to submit to God and resist. Resist the devil. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter number 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 is towards the end of the New Testament. Just a few pages over from James. First Peter chapter number 5 verses 8 and 9 tells us be sober-minded be alert don't fall asleep why your adversary you as a christian you have an adversary an enemy someone who's actively engaging in war against you mainly because he wants to get at god your adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him. It's much like what James tells us, First Peter tells us. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. There's another call to resist the devil. Resist his evil works. And resist literally means to stand and against Stand against Satan. That's the call for all Christians. We need to realize that we don't have to fear the devil. Although he is powerful, and although sometimes, though, we, we give him too much power and we give him too much room in our lives. You know, sometimes we have this image of what the devil looks like because we've watched too many cartoons and we think he's this red being, this real ugly looking, and we got horns coming out of his forehead, and he carries a pitchfork around, he has a pointy, weird looking tail, and he sits on the one's shoulder and he tells us to go do something bad, and we have the angel over here telling us, do something good. I don't believe the Satan looks that ugly. Actually, he's a pretty good theologian. The book of James actually already told us that the the devils, the demons, they even know the truth. Actually, if Satan were to walk in this door, he'd probably have a nice suit on, and he'd probably know so much about the Bible, we'd make him a Sunday school teacher. He's, He's crafty. He's deceitful. But his powers are limited. For the believer, he cannot he cannot possess you, but he can oppress you. He can try to bother you, tempt you, throw you off course. But we are called to resist his oppression. We're called to resist the temptation that comes 
our way. The only authority Satan has over our lives is that which we allow him. Oftentimes people say they've been battling Satan or they want to fight Satan or it's just all the enemy's fault. So the enemy made you yell at that person who cut you off when you was driving? No, you fell into temptation. The enemy caused that argument you had in the car on the way here with your wife? No. You allowed the enemy to affect your marriage. We need to take responsibility when we talk about the devil. He gives the temptation, but we're responsible for our actions and how we respond to the devil. And what are we to do? Well, Jesus in Matthew 4 faced Satan. He didn't argue with him. He didn't give him a good fist fight. What did he do? He fought with the word of God. Matthew 4, each and every time Satan brought a temptation to Jesus, Jesus said, it is written, and he quoted scripture. When temptation comes your way, and when you feel faced by Satan, and you're called to resist him, are you prepared to answer with what God has already said? What is the temptation you face? What is your struggle here today? Where have you failed to surrender? You know what you face. You know your temptation. Each of us has something we're geared towards. Are you prepared? Have you looked to God's word and memorized those scriptures that refer to what you're facing? And when Satan comes with temptation, are you prepared to quote scripture back to him in order to resist? Just like Jesus did in Matthew chapter number 4. We have to know God's word. God's word tells us in Romans 16, 20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Remember Satan's future. He will be cast into a lake of fire. Max Lucado said again, quoting him, Satan may be vicious, but he will not be victorious. When Jesus died and rose again, he rendered Satan powerless. Death is defeated. We don't have to fear Satan. Instead, we are called to resist the devil, and he will flee. And there's something else. Another way we're called to resist him, it's made very clear in Scripture. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 3 tells us, Finally be strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heaven. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand. Maybe we fall to Satan's temptation so often because we have not put on the whole armor of God. Maybe because we haven't taken God's word seriously that we need the armor of God. Maybe we're not spiritually minded. Maybe we're just kind of stuck. We keep falling time and time again. We keep facing conflict time and time again. We think, oh, the problem will go away eventually. The problem goes away. We think it's the problem. And then a few years down the road, we have another problem. 
Maybe it's because we're not putting on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the devil. Maybe it's because we're not surrendering to God and focusing on our communion with him. Thirdly, we see in verses 11 through 12, moving on, refuse to be a critic. Refuse to be a critic. Notice verse 11 of James 4. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And, and James is going back to what was told in the book of Leviticus, chapter number 16, chapter 19, I'm sorry, Leviticus 19, 16 through 18, where God told them, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what is James telling us here? I said, don't be a critic, and he's saying don't judge one another. Well, I think he's telling us not to slander each other. Don't go around spreading gossip about one another, tearing each other, each person down. Doing character assassination is never of God. It's sinful. Now, what James is not saying is it's okay to use discernment. We are called to judge between what's righteous and what's unrighteous. We are called to discern what is moral, what is good according to God's word. We are called to know the difference between right and wrong. And sometimes even the Bible tells us in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, that sometimes discipline is necessary in the life of a church. It should be exercised. That requires some type of judgment. The Bible also tells us that we're supposed to seek restoration for a brother fallen in sin. That requires judging and seeing that they had fallen in sin. So I'm not saying that every time we talk about judgment that it's wrong and sometimes constructive criticism is okay and needed. But the person who believes that being a critic is their spiritual gift doesn't have it quite right. Instead, they're trying to make themselves God as if they're the lawgiver and they know what is right. And that is unloving, unkind, and against God. We should be more concerned about giving an account of ourselves before God. I don't have to give account for Brother Rob. I have to give account for Joseph. My actions. How I responded to the Word of God. How I responded to criticism. How I responded to someone hurting me. I don't have to take account for you. I'm responsible for me. And if we really love with one another, one another, there should be a change within the life of a church. The Bible tells us in Romans 12 to let love be without hypocrisy. Did you know that love can have be? You can say you're loving someone, but also be a hypocrite. Because if the love is not true and you're not being honest, we can say we love each other, but. Consider what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love. 
Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Is that how you love each other? And Jesus said that you will, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Actually, Jesus even said, if you love me, if you love Jesus, we're called to keep his commands. Point number four is run to God. Run to God. Find grace. The reality is, you probably feel like you've been beaten up here this morning. You've been called an unfaithful adulterer filled with pride a slanderer, and a sinner. We've talked about Satan, and we've seen how much we look like him sometimes. So what are we to do? How are we to respond? Is there grace for such a sinner as I? The reality is, in verse 6, we see there is greater grace. There is greater grace. The reality of my sinfulness highlights the need for the grace of God in my life. And we see in verse 7 that we are called, what are we to do in the light of all this? Come to God. Submit to God. God literally means to get in rank, get in line. Humble yourselves before him. I love verse 8 tells us to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James beckons the backsliders, the rebellious, the sinners, not to run away from God, not to say there's no hope for me. Instead he says, come to God. Draw near to him. There's forgiveness to be found at the cross. Draw near, and he will draw near to you. God will not turn away from the one who comes to him with a heart of a surrender and said he will be accepted, not on the basis of his own righteousness, but on the basis of the righteousness of another who died on his behalf. His name is Jesus Christ. Because of him, we are called to draw near. He will purify. He will restore. It says in verse number 8, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We find that cleansing. We find that, that healing through the grace of God. And lastly, we see a call to be broken be broken to weep look at verse 9 be miserable and mourn and weep let your laughter be caught turned to mourning and your joy to gloom your joy to gloom i thought the christian life was all about me being happy and i was supposed to be joyful all the time and everything was supposed to be great Yet James is telling me as a result of my sin and my failure to submit to God and resist the devil, I'm to mourn and weep. 
and express sorrow for my sin before God? I mean, what would everybody in church think if they seen me kneel down at the altar praying? They might think I'm a sinner. They might think I'm in need of the grace and mercy of God. Has your children ever seen you kneel down and pray before God and weep over your sin? Have your fellow church members ever seen you can't stand up and say, I'm sorry, I confess, I failed God? I didn't represent my Lord well. Have we ever confessed? Have we ever been honest before God? Have we ever sought restoration with our brothers and sisters, whether they're here or whether they're gone now? Or we just say, we'll deal with them in heaven. Maybe we'll see them there. Hopefully. Here now, we don't got time. don't have time for that. Psalm 51 tells us, You do not want sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God. The sacrifice pleasing to God. The offering pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In fact, verse 10 tells us that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will exalt He will lift us up. In closing, I want to share a story from the book of Luke, chapter 18. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to read it. Luke 18. Verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. Jesus is telling a parable to the religious people. Verse 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, they were prideful, that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that's the religious person, and the other a tax collector. A tax collector would have been hated and thought to be just a dirty sinner. Pharisee and the tax collector go to pray. Verse 11. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The Pharisee came before God and told God how good he was. And how great he was. He he would have probably even saying, I surrender all. God, I surrendered all to you, not like that dirty tax collector over there. But look at verse 13. The tax collector, this dirty sinner that no one likes, he was standing afar off. He wouldn't even come. He wouldn't even raise, would not raise his eyes to heaven. He's in humility. He's feeling shame. But he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, over and over again. He's in anguish because of his sin. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14 tells us, I tell you, this one, the sinner, the tax collector, who came to God for mercy, went to his house justified, rather than the other. 
Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Today I ask you, have you humbled yourself before the Lord? Have you surrendered to him? And as we go back and think of what I said at the beginning, the reality is, although we say we want to surrender all, oftentimes we will not. That is why we need to run to God for mercy and grace. We are sinners. We are not perfect. But there's one who is, who died on the cross for you. And maybe today you don't even know this Jesus I'm talking about. I want to tell you that God loves you. Jesus died for you, and you can have peace with God this morning, not because of your own works, but because of Jesus. Forgiveness is offered at the cross. Mercy is to be found to those who come and ask for it. And for the believer here today, I don't know what's in your heart, but you do. I ask that you examine your own heart and see your relationship with the Lord today. Have you submitted all? Are you willing to submit? Are you willing to be humbled? Are you resisting the devil? Are you being unfaithful to God? Is your heart filled with pride or humility this morning? Let us pray. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, As we come to you this morning, we come to you, Lord, aware, Lord, that there is sin within our hearts. Lord, we come to you aware that we are in need of your mercy and your grace because we stand guilty before you. Lord, we have said we'll surrender all, but we haven't. Lord, we've looked to ourselves and not to you. Lord, we feel like we fight temptation day after day and can never seem to get it right. Lord, we're like the tax collector. We ask for mercy upon us sinners. Lord, help us to see the errors of our ways. Help us to look to you with eyes of faith. Or that we wouldn't be hypocrites, but that we would be genuine in our faith. That we would be genuine in our following of you. We would really deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow you daily. And that we would do as you require and we would be submissive to what your word teaches us. Lord, if any are lost here today, I pray that they would respond to the message of the gospel that you would draw them in, arrest them with your Holy Spirit within their souls, that they would see their sin and their need for you. To the believers here today, Lord, I pray that you would move within their hearts whatever their needs may be, that they would see that you are the one that they need, that they would strip away all pride and arrogance and flee to you for mercy. Lord, I pray that you'd your Holy Spirit to move their hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.